Psalm 95. And as you are doing so, I do just want to uh, let you know, uh, perhaps primarily uh, for our visitors, that our second offering was not our saying, try again, as if you didn't give enough the first time. Uh, rather, Elder Wilkinson and I were unsure if it, that second offering is going to missions, to mercy, or Christian education, but it does have a very specific purpose. So just so we're on the same page when it comes to that. All right, Psalm 95 will be our consideration for this morning. Psalm 95, I'll read the entirety, all 11 verses. Let us attend to the reading of God's holy word. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Almighty God and Father, help this to be the beginning of the matter, not the end. Help this, the preaching of your word, this monologue, beget dialogue. Help us to continue to think through these issues together. You have promised to speak today. Give us hearts of flesh. We ask this in Jesus' name and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen. It is impossible to read the Psalms and not be forced to face the theme of time. We looked at Psalm 90 two weeks ago, Psalm 39 last week, and those Psalms, as much as they deal with suffering and waiting, they also explicitly deal with time. How do we view? How do we treat? How do we live? How do we redeem? How do we think about time? The brevity of life, the swiftness of our days and years. Psalm 90, Elder Wilkinson read that, tells us to number our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. Psalm 39, Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Another translation, let me know how fleeting my life is. Specifically, the concept of time is measured by the day. Everywhere in the psalm. Psalm 1 leads with it. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates Day and night. Psalm 19, day to day, creation pours forth speech. Night to night, knowledge is revealed. Psalm 71, 8, let my lips sing forth praise all the day. Psalm 81, 3, blow the trumpet at the new moon and the full moon on our feast day. Our reading from Psalm 95, verse 7. Today, if you will hear his voice. Central to an understanding of the time that God has given us is the day, even though we recognize, as Psalm 90 does, that a thousand years in God's sight are but yesterday, the fundamental measurement of time given to us in Scripture is the day. Think about Genesis, creation. How did God create? And there was morning and there was evening the first day and the second day, 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 day. The day is the basic dimension of time in the Bible. 
Uh, that verse in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days. Other translations have rendered that. Teach us to reckon our days, or teach us to appoint our days, or teach us to prepare our days. We have to reckon with the day, prepare the day. Our Psalm, Psalm 95, the voice of the Lord is coming, and it's coming today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Uh, the Hebrew word yom, meaning day, uh, comes from a root word meaning hot or to be hot. The idea being the hot hours of the day, the warm hours. And Psalm 95 is simply one of many psalms that focuses our attention on the day. More specifically, how should we do our day? How do we get the day right? Getting the day right is paramount. You have to figure out how to get the day right because the day makes up your week. And your weeks make up your years, and those years are your life. The day is it's like a page in a book, and there are many pages, and the pages repeat. But the pages are what make up the book. Perhaps you remember the movie Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. And for all its dark humor and all its silliness, it is actually a profound movie about trying to get the day right. And there are all kinds of philosophies of life that this character tries. Uh, so in the movie, Bill Murray's character, Phil, gets stuck in the same day. Groundhog Day is the day he's stuck in, February 2nd. And so he wakes up, and it's literally the same day, same song on the radio. And no matter what you think of the movie, if you think it is stupid or annoying or twisted or funny, the one thing you should not think that that movie is, is far-fetched. That movie is totally realistic. Waking up to the same day. Why? That's life. You and I, if you just stop and think, if we think about our days, we are absolutely stuck in the same day. Your alarm goes off, you get up, you grab coffee or don't grab coffee, you grab breakfast or skip breakfast, you go to work, where you work, you get home from work, you eat dinner, you do a few hobby-like things, maybe a show or a book, you go to sleep, and the whole thing repeats over and over again until you die. That's what Psalms talks about. Now, there might be a little variation in there. You might go to a party or go to a movie or take a vacation. But those things are not your life. Those are anomalies. Those are outliers. Your day is essentially the same. And it repeats. Which is why you need to get the day right. Today. Now, as way of illustration, we're just going to take two very small components of your day. We'll realize how not small they are. And just talk about them. Two parts of your day. Eating meals and coming home. Okay? Coming home is one small part of the afternoon, evening-ish. And then meals make up a good chunk of your day. Assuming you're trying to have you know, at least one meal with your family, a spouse, friend, a coworker, roommate, whatever. So the question that we could ask is, do you have those two things figured out, those two basic routines? Eating meals, coming home. First, let's, let's talk about one meal. Let's just talk about dinner. And let's work from dinner prep start to eating to finish to dishes all that done and let's just say that's roughly two hours so it's two hours a day it's 14 hours a week 728 hours a year which means that is more than 30 days straight a year that you do nothing but eat dinner that's an entire month of just eating dinner a year or if you prefer that is that amounts to 18 work weeks of doing nothing but eating dinner so do you have that time figured out? Do you spend those two hours every day in peace, happy, enjoying it, 
Does it run smoothly every time? If you add in breakfast, coffee, dishes, lunch, you are looking at most of your awake time is spent eating meals. It's roughly a third of your life is spent eating, and then possibly with your spouse, family, friends. Specifically in a house, have you distributed all the domestic duties so that everyone is happy the whole two hours? More than likely, there's not peace. Mealtime is a war. Why? Well, because who chooses the meal? Who does the shopping? Who prepares the meal? Who sets the table? Who cooks? What is the trade-off for the person that does all those things? When do they prepare the meal? What time do you eat? Who decides? Who clears the table? How fast does the table need to be cleared? How long do we allow the eating to continue? How do you thank the person who cooks? Who does the dishes? Who loads the dishwasher? Or who unloads the clean dishes so the dirty ones can be loaded? Which dishes get used? Which cups? When do paper plates and paper napkins get used? And who decides? What do the kids do? And you know that each of these decisions is a war. You have to talk about it. You have to negotiate. But it needs to be done so that you don't hate each other for two hours every single day. 728 hours a year. It's not necessarily easy to have a meal in peace, to enjoy mealtime. You have to consciously sort out the responsibilities in the house. Negotiate, talk, work through it. A year ago, a year or two ago, uh, Lindsay and I, my wife, were struggling with dinner time. I thought that if I had to say take a bite one more time, I was going to have a stroke. We did not have the dinner time figured out. Well, at that time, I got really into uh, Dan Carlin's history podcast, especially his King of Kings stuff. And at dinner, uh, I would be done with my food because I actually take bites. And the kids would be sitting there with most of the food on their plate. And so I just started telling them whatever I could remember from the stories that I had heard. Well, that worked like magic. And they just robotically listened and started taking bites while I talked. Because who doesn't like stories? And then I noticed that they were finished with their meal. So we did this every single night. I would tell stories. They would eat. When I saw the food was gone, story over. That eventually led me to summarizing stories like the Odyssey and eventually reading the Odyssey in small parts each night while they ate. Then the Iliad. We picked apart some poetry. Paradise Lost. That didn't go very well. Winnie the Pooh. Tom Sawyer. And now we're reading Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. You have to figure it out. And then you have to keep figuring it out. Do you have dinner right? Meals right? Figure it out. It's a third of your life. Get, get that part of the day right. Or the second, much smaller moment of most of our days, coming home. That's maybe ten minutes, maybe more, maybe less. When you come home, or your spouse comes home, is, is there someone to greet you? Are you greeted? How do they greet you? Is it nice? Is it pleasant? Do your kids greet you? How do you greet your kids, or your wife, or your husband, after a day of work? Do you come in complaining, stomping, kids are hiding? Do the kids come running out to see you? And if they do, why? But also keep that going. And if they don't, why? Think about how you come home. Do you greet your wife, ask her how her day was? Does she ask you how your day was? Do you talk a little bit, hit the highlights, ask her if there's anything you can do for her, how the kids were? Do you bring her something to show her that you thought of her that day? Does she have something for you? When she comes home, how do you greet her? Do you have coming down home? Does that go well? Again, 10 minutes a day is an hour a week, 52 hours a year. That's roughly one whole work week of doing nothing but coming home. Of course your life feels like Groundhog Day. Now, you know this is why people have dogs, right? Dogs get you coming home exactly right 100% of the time. 
When I come home, my dog is having a seizure. He's so excited to see me every single day. Dogs have it figured out. And they know what they're doing. For five good minutes of excitement a day, they get a lifetime supply of food, medical care, a bed, water, belly rubs, maybe a workout every now and then. Their entire life handed to them on a silver platter because they are excellent for five minutes a day. Pretty impressive. But think about how you could change your life if you were excellent at meals. Excellent at coming home. Get the day right. Get coming home right. Get meals together right. Now, back to the movie Groundhog Day. You may remember Phil. He, uh, he likes this girl, and he tries to make a move on her, and she slaps him. And every day he keeps trying, and he gets slapped again and again. Until for, I don't know, roughly five to ten seconds or something like that in the movie, it is just a montage of him getting slapped like 30 times. And you are thinking, change something. Try something different. Really? Many of us feel like the day is just slapping us. Are you making changes to your day? Your schedule? Your routines? Or are you not, and that's why you keep getting slapped? One of the the ideas in the movie is that if you are too stubborn to change, you will keep running into the same thing over and over. Or, Or another way of getting at this principle, this concept, if all your conversations with people are boring... If, you're, if you find yourself having a lot of boring conversations, it's probably because you're boring. Or if you're having a lot of bad days, it's probably because you're making your days bad. Now, this past week I heard someone say that if you are a young man and all the girls are rejecting you, the problem isn't with all the girls. Again, in the movie, Groundhog Day, eventually being stuck in the same day, he falls so completely apart, he resorts to a nihilism of sorts, and he tries to kill himself. And that doesn't work. Why? Because that doesn't work. That doesn't actually fix the problems. And Phil wakes up in the same day again and again. Why? Well, because life isn't meaningless. Life isn't pointless. So you can't just say life is meaningless and pointless and think that fixes anything. That doesn't solve the problem of the day. And in the movie, quite fascinatingly, or at least surprising, It isn't until Phil starts to take his rejection, his failures, seriously and realize that he is arrogant and narcissistic and cynical. It isn't until he realizes these things that he begins to change. It isn't until he realizes the problem is him, not everyone else, and then he begins to realize that his day is his concern. So he starts to make plans and goals. He starts to take seriously the time that has been given to him, and he starts to build character and skills, and he starts to change. He pays attention to the day and finds all kinds of things to do for others and for himself. And his days become increasingly rich and meaningful, even though he still is living the same day over and over. Even when things are getting good and getting better, he saves lives, he cares for people, he loves, he works, he serves, he ice sculpts, learns the piano and wakes up in the same day over and over again. But eventually, through refining and paying attention to his day, he gets out of the same horrible day. Now, I don't remember where I heard this. It's either the writers, the producers, the directors. I can't remember. Someone said or estimated that it took him a thousand years in the movie to get the day right. That's not a bad way of thinking about it. In fact... It's not all that different from what we see throughout the entire Bible, from one generation to the other. 
I was listening to a lecture a few weeks ago where the speaker was commentating, kind of giving a broad brush stroke of the Old Testament. And he said that if you think about the Old Testament, big picture, backed up, macro view, it really is about God flattening the Jews and then flattening the Jews some more and flattening the Jews some more, putting them on their face over and over and over again for not getting the day right. They get their day wrong. They get their days wrong. They get their years wrong. And God just flattens them and flattens them again and again and flattens them some more. And each and every time, the people get up and they say, we must have done something wrong. And they find the Torah. They celebrate the Passover day. They have reforms where Sabbath day worship and rest is reinstituted. And they try it again. They try their day again. And in this, there's an important principle, truly ensconced in a great and unforgettable psalm, Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? This psalm can go into the ditch if you think, I don't have to do anything because God is my help. I don't have to aim. I don't have to have goals. I don't have to try because God is my help. That's one bad way of thinking. The pit on the other side is if you think, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence does my help come from? Help? I don't need any help. I'm free, I'm autonomous, I'm sovereign, I'll do, I'll do what I please. And more to that this evening. What the psalmist is doing in 121, he, he lifts his eyes, he sets his sight on something, he takes aim, he has goals, he has a purpose, a telos. And it's quite interesting actually, this is pointed out to me over the past several weeks, that humanity as people, we actually delight in taking aim, in having goals. We're always aiming at something. Always. We are constantly aiming at something, shooting at something, throwing at something. You might pay hundreds of dollars a month in cable and internet bills or buying tickets to watch people take aim and then hit the mark. You watch basketball, golf, football. Well, what are they doing? Taking aim and then trying to hit the mark. And people make millions of dollars for aiming at things, having goals, and hitting what they aim at. That's kind of what the Olympics is. We were born to aim. And then we were born to strive to hit that aim with everything in us and to hone our aim in. And apparently we were also born to jump and rejoice and scream like lunatics when people hit what they aim at. Stadiums filled with people who aimed, hit their goal, achieved what they aimed at, and we go crazy. I lift up my eyes to the hills. What, what are you aiming at? If someone, say, didn't know you at all, if someone were to watch your day, what would they say your aim was? A half gallon of ice cream? The whiskey hidden behind the bun pan? And if you don't know what you should be aiming at, this is one perhaps helpful way. Answer this question. What or where in your life do you think someone should really do something about that? What sphere of your life, your marriage, your education, the church, do you think, why doesn't someone take care of that? There. Aim there. Aim at fixing those problems that you can see. But, as we all know, when we aim, we set goals, well, we miss. Some of us are proficient at missing. We miss what we're aiming at. And so one of the things that we need is we need each other to identify and to tell us when we are aiming wrong, when we're not hitting what we're aiming at. Flannery O'Connor's short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, makes this point rather shockingly. The story begins, trivial, light, breezy. 
There's this family and they're going for a ride and you're dealing in the conversation with typical petty bitterness and family resentment and the selfishness that goes on in families and their interactions and their dialogue. And specifically, the majority of the story is told through the eyes or the perspective of the grandmother. And she is completely self-absorbed, critical, judgmental, arrogant, hypocritical. She, she blame shifts. She plays the victim. And as the story goes, she just really starts to grind on you, like fingernails down a chalkboard. Well, this family ends up lost somewhere, or they took a wrong turn, and they run into this group of men. The grandmother, I think at least, recognizes the leader of this group of men as someone from a news story she heard about saying that he was a murderer and dangerous. And the story goes very quickly from trivial, light, annoying to gruesome. And then it just stops, rather jolting. So as this family runs into these three men, uh, the grandmother engages the misfit, as he is called, the leader of this group. The grandmother engages him in some dialogue, and it becomes clear straight away these men are going to kill this family. The other two guys, they take the family out into the woods, shoot them, and emerge wearing their clothes. Again, it's just brutal stuff. Uh, but in this conversation between the grandmother and the misfit, again, this unbearably judgmental, critical, hypocritical woman, the grandmother has this flash where she says something to the effect of, again, to the misfit, you are just like me. In fact, you could have been my son. And the misfit shoots her and kills her. When the misfit's two accomplices ask him about her, the mis about the grandmother, the misfit replies, she would have been a good woman if she had someone to shoot her every day of her life. Now, if you've read the story, when you hit that line, I mean, it's sobering. It just stops you dead in your tracks. There's an idea that I found in Carl Jung. He developed it, and I found it fascinating. Uh, Carl, I just call him Carl now. Carl said, uh, he articulated, articulated that the trickster, or perhaps better, the fool, the fool is the precursor to the Savior. The satirical, the ironic, the one we often laugh at. Again, the fool is the precursor to the Savior. Why? Because you're a fool whenever you start something new. And if you're not willing to be a fool, you won't start anything new. And if you won't start anything new, then you won't develop and you won't grow strength. So the willingness to be a fool is the precursor to salvation, or we might say transformation, or if we want to make it sound churchy, sanctification. When you start aiming at things, you're going to be terrible. So do you just never start aiming? Never set goals? Never think how to get the day right? How do you want to end the day? You just keep your eyes down, navel-gazing your whole life? Because as soon as you lift your eyes up, as soon as you start paying attention to the day, as soon as you start reckoning with your day, you're going to do a horrible job at it. So, so go and have a horrible day and get that out of the way. And then fix it. And make the next day better. Recognizing that you have to embrace, you have to willingly embrace being the fool. You have to willingly do something terrible so that you can learn to do it better, so that you can be transformed into the image of the Savior. The fool is the precursor to the Savior. If you got shot in the head every day of your life, you will be what you should be. 
And that is what the psalmist, that's what many of the psalms, they're trying to take us there when it comes to time. Reckoning with our days, taking aim during the day, it will bring two things. Humility and hope. Humility and hope. That is why Jesus says, take up your cross daily. I think in my own life, and quite possibly in my teaching, I focused a lot on the taking up of the cross and what that means. But again, here comes the basic unit of measurement in the Bible. Take up your cross daily. Daily. Do we have the day right? One of the many reasons, one of the reasons why we do this, why we celebrate Eucharist every Lord's Day, is to remind ourselves that we need to redeem the time. We need to daily take up our cross. Because there is a day, there is the day that we are preparing for. We work to reckon with our days because there is a day where we will be reckoned with. The Lord's Day is set apart as a reminder to prepare us each and every day for the day of the Lord. Beloved in Christ, this is the Lord's Supper. This meal does not belong to Sand Hills Presbyterian Church. It does not belong to the men who serve you. It does not belong only to Presbyterians. It is the Lord's And it belongs to all those who have been baptized in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The table is for all of us who seek to carry our crosses daily.